Thank you, Eric. Uh, the Bible tells us to make the most of every opportunity. We have a great opportunity here to actually do what we pray uh, that God would give us the opportunity to do. Speak of Jesus Christ to people who don't know. And so just want to uh, encourage you uh, to prayerfully consider joining in uh, in this wonderful opportunity that we have. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20. I was originally going to preach the entire chapter, and then I thought I should only preach the first 10 verses, and now we're down to the first six verses, and I hope we get through them. Um, Revelation chapter 20. And we're going to uh, read the first six verses. The title of the message this morning, Visions of Victory. And we have two visions uh, given to us here in the first um, six verses. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection." Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Let's ask the Lord's blessing again. And now, God in heaven, we ask that you would teach us the things that you have intended for us, and that by your Holy Spirit, that we would experience these words with the power of God uh, to show us Christ and, and transform our lives. We thank you that you have this great purpose for us this morning, and we yield ourselves now to it. In Jesus' name, amen. This past Friday and, uh, and Saturday, uh, yesterday, uh, Wayne and I were invited to meet with uh, the elders and pastor of a uh, OPC church in the Chicago area, Westminster OPC, and uh, they asked us to come and talk to them about vision and mission. And we were happy to do that. And, uh, but as I was preparing for that meeting, I was just reminded again of the essential link that exists between uh, vision and endurance. That one of the things that vision does, having a, a, a picture of the future, uh, a good future, uh, that sort of a vision is a great help um, to endure in a difficult present circumstance. Uh, I think one illustration of this might be uh, when, when you have little, when you have babies, right? Little babies can be a lot of work. You have to do everything for them. You have to uh, feed them. You have to uh, clothe them. You've got to change them. You need to give them medicine when they're sick. Uh, and they never say thank you. Not only do they not say thank you, they will often fight you, sincerely, with all their heart and soul, <clears throat> 
and uh, in the midst, uh, while you're trying to help them, right? They're, they're going to be they're going to be waging war with you. But it's it's helpful in that context to to keep in mind they won't be babies forever. It's just a little while. Soon they will be able to do all these things for themselves. And so you, you are able to maybe step back a little bit and, and give yourself the freedom to enjoy the baby stage even as you look forward to something more. That's endurance. And it's the vision of the future when they're going to be a lot of fun, five and six and seven uh, and, and wonderful uh, godly teenagers. Uh, that vision of a future helps you endure in the present. Well, it's the same for a believer it's the same for the Christian life. A life is, is often hard, just plain hard. And the Christian life is almost always hard. It's not easy to fight against the world and the flesh and the devil and to get up the next morning and do the same thing all over. But the hard part, we're reminded in this text, the hard part is just for a little while. Jesus wants us to remember and know that the The hard part is going to give way to glory, that everything is going to be made new, and that allows us to endure with joy in the midst of a hard present that's called endurance. And so Jesus gives us this morning these visions of victory, two, two wonderful visions of victory to encourage us and strengthen us in our walk. Um, we've come to this morning, maybe you didn't realize this, but we've tripped over this morning the hottest wire in the Bible. This is the most controversial text probably in all of Scripture. Uh, Romans 7 might be, a, eh, it's not even close. Uh, the, re, denominations are founded on this, uh, interpretations of this. Churches have split. Uh, it is still true in many churches in our, in our nation, particularly here in America, that you're not allowed to be a member unless you have a dispensational premillennial understanding of Revelation chapter 20. And uh, if you don't know what that means, I'm not going to explain it to you today um, because I'm not going to get into... Uh, all the different interpretations. As you know, there are, there are several options, the premillennial option, and then you've got historical premill, and then dispensational premill, and then you've got pre-rapture and post. It gets very confusing. You need charts, and, and you can find them online. And if you want to do that, I would encourage you. It's, an, it's a fascinating study, pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill. But that's not where I'm going to go this morning, because I don't think that's why this was written. Right? We, need to, we need to take Scripture on its own terms and for its own agenda. And I, I, I'm convinced that Jesus did not give us uh, Revelation 20, particularly uh, these six verses, in order to either start or end theological controversies. He gave this vi- these visions to a church that was struggling, a church that was under persecution. People were dying in, uh, in the arenas, eaten by wild animals. People were thrown in prison. People had lost their homes. People had lost their families. And these, these visions are given then to a suffering church in order to strengthen them and encourage them in, uh, in this walk, in this pilgrimage. The, um, the, the, the two visions that we're going to look, like, look at first, you'll just see them in verses 1 through 3 and then 4 and following. They're introduced by the words, then I saw. That's how John introduces uh, a new vision, then I saw. And what we're going to see just this morning, then first, the first vision regards the binding of Satan. 
Um, the second vision uh, regards the victory of the saints. And we're going to take uh, our time this morning just to unpack these. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. As you remember, the book of Revelation is not a journalistic reporting of, of uh, events in heaven. It's, these are pictures and, and images and symbols but they're, they're meant to convey a powerful message that, that behind the scenes, God is at work. That, that our headlines are uh, what we see, but revelation is what God sees in a sense. It's, it's showing us the truth of God at work in the world. In this first vision, we have a, we have a vision of God, uh, of King Jesus binding the, the devil. Uh, Eric Alexander, a great preacher, a uh, Scottish preacher, um, asked three questions that I think are helpful to unpack this vision. What does the thousand years refer to? Uh, what does it mean that Satan is bound? And when does this binding of Satan take place? And so those are the three questions that we're going to uh, proceed with. What does the thousand years refer to? Uh, you'll notice it listed several times in our text. Well, it's almost certainly not meant to be taken literally, uh, because as we've seen in the book of Revelation, numbers are highly symbolic, and the book of Revelation is full of symbolic numbers, and so you have the number three, which uh, is the number of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You have the number of seven, which is the number of perfection, and the beast has the number 666, the number of imperfection, perfect imperfection. You have the number 10, which is the number of power and authority. Uh, you have the number 12, which is the number of the church, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. Uh, and so when John in chapter uh, 14 and 7 numbers, sees the, uh, the church, he sees 144,000 standing with Christ. 12 times 12 times 1,000, this innumerable host of saints through all the ages now with Christ. So the numbers are symbolic. And since that's true, there is no reason at all then to interpret this number literally. There are many reasons to interpret it symbolically. It stands for something. Well, of course, the question then is, what does it stand for? If it's a symbol, what is it a symbol of? Well, 1,000 in, in those days would be, would be a, a number sort of like, it's just too big to count. Uh, but but it, this number, uh, 1,000 years, it, 10 times 10 times 10, right? 10 to the power of 3. 10, the number of power and authority. 3, the, the number of God. God exercising his power and authority. That defines the age. That defines the period of time. And so I believe that the, the best interpretation of this is that John is, is referencing the, the gospel age. As Christ reigns, the gospel is proclaimed, the church is built up, and the elect are gathered in. In other words, we are living in the millennium. We're living in the thousand years. Um, there are clues in this text, and we'll just keep unpacking this. One of the, one of the clues that that's, that's the proper understanding of the thousand years is when we understand what it means that Satan is bound. So we're told, verse 2, he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, to bind, 
is to restrain. It's not to kill, it's not to destroy, it's not to get rid of, it's to restrain. And the, the picture here is that during this thousand years, the gospel age, uh, Satan is being restrained by the power of God, unable to exercise his full authority and power to deceive the whole world. Notice we're shown that in verse 3. He's restrained so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now, if you're, if you're thinking along with me, you're saying, well, that sounds a little confusing because if the devil is restrained during the thousand years, which is right now, and he's restrained so that he doesn't deceive the nations... Well, why is he still deceiving people? Why is the work of deception still going on? Which, of course, it is. And the answer is because he's been restrained but not destroyed. He's on a chain, in a sense, right? He can go so far, but only so far, always under the sovereign authority of God. And that's what we've seen throughout the book of Revelation. When when the, the powers of darkness have authority, it is a given authority and a limited authority. So that's, that's what we see here. The devil is still wielding devastating power, but not like he once did and not like he will again in the future for a short time. Okay, Jesus is telling us these things. So we get a little more clarity when we ask the final question, when does the binding happen? When does the binding of Satan take place? Well, to answer that question, we have to look at other scriptures. Uh, this is called the analogy of faith. It just means that we remember that though the Bible is made up of many books with different authors, it has one divine author, the Holy Spirit, and so we can expect that the Bible will be its own best interpreter. And so when one verse is not clear, then we go and we look for other verses that speak to the same thing that can shed light on this verse. And so let's do that here. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is engaged in his ministry. He's casting out demons. But the... Um, the Pharisees, the, the Jewish leaders, are charging him with being in uh, allegiance with the devil. So Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to begin reading at verse 24. It's a very important verse. Verse 24. Uh, let's just start in 22 so that we catch the context. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. He cast out the demon, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this, this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he, that is Jesus, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. 
But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Exact same word. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And so Jesus, under the charge that he is casting out demons by the power of demons, shows what it, a silly, ridiculous idea that is, then the devil would be casting out the devil. But, but he goes on to say, if I'm doing it by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And the reason that I'm able to cast out demons and plunder the strong man's house is because I've bound the strong man. That's the point. And you find that point reiterated in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus sends out his disciples on a mission trip and they come back Luke chapter 10 verse 17 Jesus had sent 72 out two by two Luke 10 verse 17 the 72 returned with joy saying Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Remember the language of Satan being seized, cast into a pit? Jesus says, I watched it happen. It's it's happening as the gospel is being proclaimed. And as as the disciples go in the power of Jesus' name with the message of the Christ, the word of God is a mighty weapon and Satan falls like lightning from heaven. He is bound. He's restrained. And the, the power of Christ then over the devil is sealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what happened, uh, one of the things that happened at the cross. So Paul can say in Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's, uh, that's when the binding of Satan took place. Now that, that, that picture becomes a bit more clear when we step back and we look at all of human history up to date, and we, we realize, again, and this is not something you don't know, but we realize history can be divided fundamentally between the time before Christ and after Christ, specifically the time from the fall of Adam until the, the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ, that's one period, and, and then the, the time from Christ's first ascension to his second coming, that's another period. And the devil's activity in those periods are, is, is very different. Before the time of Christ, from the time of Adam to the incarnation, all through the Old Testament, the devil is allowed to rule over the nations with, in a particular way and with particular effectiveness. So when you get to Genesis chapter 6 and God, uh, he sees the great wickedness that had consumed the earth so that, we're told in verse 35, that every intention, not most, every intention and every thought of his heart, men's heart, was only evil all the time. It is complete darkness in the hearts of men. 
And it's the whole world because the flood comes and, and every human being made in the image of God, save those in the ark, are justly destroyed because of this great wickedness. Now, now, how is it possible that the whole world would be this evil? And the answer is the, the overwhelming power and deception of the devil over the nations. As you follow redemptive history forward, Abraham receives the gospel. We're told that in the book of Galatians. And Abraham believed the gospel. And from Abraham came a people who believed in the true God. And they were the only ones. Has that ever struck you as strange that in the 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ, there was only one nation of all the nations of the world. We're used to believers all over. In all through the Old Testament, you have one nation where people follow God, and then, well, it's, it's sparse pickings even there sometimes. But every other nation serves idols. Every single other nation serves idols. Why? Because of the overwhelming deception and power of the devil. And yet, then when Jesus comes, suddenly you find Gentiles being converted and being converted in mass. The gospel is being uh, is, is spreading so that now we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world, in every nation, every continent. How, what happened? Jesus happened. The king came. The kingdom of God invaded this world. In former times, God was allowing the devil to have this pervasive, um, um, decepting, deceptive power so that the nations were kept in spiritual darkness. But the, the wonder of the incarnation, we're told in Matthew 4, 16, that the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Praise God that's true. If it were not true, you would not be here. And neither would I. We are the Gentiles. Our ancestors lived in darkness. They lived in a region and shadow of death. And Jesus Christ came and broke the power of the devil. He bound the devil. Of course the devil is still at work. The beast and the false prophet and the harlot of Babylon are all wreaking their demonic havoc. But the gospel is being proclaimed all over the world today. Sinners are being saved every day from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Remember what Satan tempted Jesus with when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness? Uh, ask of me and I'll, uh, um, just bow to me and I'll give you the nations. And you know what Jesus said? Thank you very much. I'll take the nations. God has the authority to give the nations to Christ as his inheritance. Ask of me and I will make you. That's Psalm 2. I will give you an inheritance, the nations as your inheritance. That's exactly what's happening today. Jesus is taking what is rightfully his. He's plundering the devil's kingdom. The Holy Spirit is powerfully raising spiritually dead people to spiritual life in Christ. We are living right now in this uh, gospel age where Jesus is at work. According to his perfect purposes, he wins every battle, every time as he builds his church and gathers his saints 
for their eternal future. We need to remember that because we're tempted to look at our days as days of decline. It looks like it's declined. Churches are closing. Uh, people are apostatizing. Uh, they're, they're, the, the church seems to be increasingly worldly. Uh, the powers of hell seem to be increasing in strength. But Jesus wants us to know, in this gospel age, the gospel mission is powerfully advancing exactly according to schedule. And though we are experiencing decline, maybe in our part of the world, in other parts of the world, the church is expanding. So South America, Africa, Asia, the church is growing, sometimes like crazy. Just, it just came across an uh, interesting fact that I, had, I did not know and would not have imagined. Which country would you suppose... Uh, is, uh, do you find the church growing by the fastest rate, percentage-wise? Where is the church growing the fastest? You know what the answer is? Iran. Iran. Has Jesus bound the devil? Has he bound Satan? Absolutely. Is he accomplishing his glorious purposes? Are the gates of hell able to stand against the church? Not a chance. We have to remember, we belong to the victor, the king. And yes, the church suffers. But you see, persecution, persecution isn't the church losing, it's the church conquering. That's what we're told in, in, in chapter 12, verse 11. That, that John sees the saints who had, quote, conquered the devil. How? Well, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. They've conquered by their participation with Christ, their union with Jesus Christ, and by the word of their testimony being, Jesus is worth living and dying for. And they love not their lives even unto death, and that witness in Christ by the power of Christ conquers the devil. It's, it's really um, invigorating truth. And it's precisely then, you see, as the church suffers and persists in faith, as we suffer in faith and for the faith, that our witness is the most powerful. As we endure, you see, just endure, holding on to what you're convinced is true because God has said it's true and because Jesus Christ has promised you it's true. And as you hold on to your hope in Christ, you are participating in the victory of Christ over against the devil. And, and, and then to, to live and suffer and die in faith, it's not failure, it's victory. And that's the, that's the second and final vision. It's victory. Then I saw thrones, verse 4. When John sees thrones, he's seen heaven. You can see that uh, throughout the book. And on those thrones are those to whom authority to judge was committed. Authority to judge, authority, honor, position, power given to these people. Well, who would, who would be given such a great honor as to reign with Christ? And the answer is the church. Particularly the souls of believers who have died in the Lord. He says, I saw there reigning the souls of those uh, who had been martyred, uh, who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Christ. And so the martyrs, 
the souls of the martyrs in their conscience presence uh, in their conscience consciousness present before the Lord they are they are with Christ not just uh, living with him reigning with him but not just the martyrs normal faithful followers notice he says also that those who had not worshiped the beast they had not believed the devil's deceptions. They had not received the mark of the devil in their forehead or their hands. In other words, they just, they didn't follow the devil's principles or paradigms. They made a break with him. They were followers of Jesus. Not, not miraculous, flashy, uh, noteworthy followers, but, but true followers. They, they believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. They believed that Jesus Christ was King. And they, and they believed that everything that Jesus said was true. And they believed that the gospel was sufficient. And they believed that he was coming again. And then they died. And they now reign with Christ in heaven. Notice John says, they came to life. Now that gets a little confusing. What's he talking about? They came to life and reigned with Christ. When did they come to life? And the answer is they came to life when they died. It's a paradox, right? But we have paradox throughout the book of Revelation. The lion, right? John says, someone tells him, go look at the lion. And he says, I looked to see the lion and there was a lamb there as, as though it had been slain. Paradoxes throughout the book. They came to life, that happens. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the soul into glory, okay? When we die, our soul is separated from our body. Our body goes to the ground, but if we are in Christ, our soul experiences what's called here the first resurrection. And we reign then with Jesus Christ. That is not how the world looks at it. The world looks at martyrs as losers, victims possibly. The early church might be wondering what... what how can it be possible that Jesus reigns in heaven and loved ones are being given to lions? And Jesus says, yeah, but look, look and see. Look, look and see. They are not victims. They are conquerors. They, they, are, they are reigning at Jesus' right hand. Eric Alexander, again, tells the story of a man um, who was martyred in Scotland during the late 1600s. The British government was trying to uh, wipe out the covenanters. And, um, and so there was a Colonel uh, Deal who was just a vicious man. He was, he was uh, hunting Christians in the moors of Scotland. He, he uh, happily would take uh, a father and, uh, and husband and murder him in front of his family. He would take children and do the same. Uh, he captured and killed a, a man who had been fearlessly preaching the gospel. And, uh, and, he, and he said to the townspeople who were there... What do you think of your man now? Do you see what we've done to him? And one godly woman in the crowd said, All that you have done, sir, is to dispatch him to the right hand of the glory on high, there to reign as a prince with God. It's all that you've accomplished. And that's exactly right. That's, that's exactly what Jesus wants us to know. That all that death can accomplish for believers is to translate us into the presence of God, to reign at the right hand of God as princes with Jesus. Now that's a vision that can give you encouragement. What a wonderful encouragement for the suffering church in John's day and the church in our day. 
What a wonderful reminder that the souls of our loved ones who've gone, uh, who've died in the Lord, uh, they are alive, reigning with Jesus. And there's a blessing that's given to them in verse 6. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The second death is the death of eternal separation from God in hell. That's the second death. And Jesus says, over those who have died in Christ and been raised, their souls raised in glory, the second death has no power over them. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. They will reign with him right now. And then what? What happens after the thousand years? Well, that's chapter 21. That's chapter 21. Then everything gets made new. Bodies are reunited with glorified, glorified bodies are, reun, are reunited with, with perfected souls. And there's no more crying and no more mourning and no more pain. The former things are passed away. All things become new. And God dwells with his people and they dwell with him in a new heaven and a new earth. That's our future. That's our future. And brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ wants us to see it, wants us to envision it, wants us to lay hold of it so that we can patiently endure while we wait for it. Life is hard. Some of you are here this morning with broken hearts. Some of you are here with broken bodies. Some of you feel like you're just going through the motions and it feels like life has been sapped from you. You don't remember uh, the joy that maybe you once had. Peace is a distant memory. Jesus knows. And Jesus wants you to, to see behind the scenes what he's actually accomplished for you and is accomplishing for you. So that you can remember, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let me give you a, a little tip when you come to prayer. Instead of reminding God of all the hard things that are true in your life today, I'd like to encourage you to think about thanking God for all the things that are unseen, but eternally true. Thank you, God, that I have inherit an inheritance kept in me for heaven, unspotted, un unspoiled, unfading. Thank you that you keep me for it. Thank you that... Uh, this light and momentary affliction can't be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Thank you that there's going to be a day when there's no more mourning and no more crying and no more death, no more pain. Thank you that, that there is a new heaven and a new earth. Thank you that Jesus is there and all the loved ones who've gone to be with him. Thank you that the holy angels are there worshiping you day and night and one day I'll get to join them. And thank you that everything that's happening in the world around me is by your sovereign control and command and all for your glory, your purposes, and it all has to serve the good of your people. And after you've prayed that prayer, then ask yourself, how do I feel? Because you're going to feel hope. You're going to feel encouragement. 
You're going to feel peace as you fix your eyes on what is yet to come and the victory that you have in Christ. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, I thank you that you lift our eyes up to see what is true for our lives behind the veil. And Lord, you show us that we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ and that therefore we can, we can move forward as the church fighting this fight in your strength with our eyes and hearts set on what is yet to come. Lord, I pray that you would just reorient the way that we think, that the direction of our thoughts is not first towards what is true about our current circumstances, but what is true about our eternal future. And that our first thought is not about how we feel, but what Jesus Christ has accomplished and his joy in his victory, his joy in rescuing us. Our first thought wouldn't be about our weakness, but his power. Not our sin, but his righteousness. So that, oh God, I pray that the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done, would he just strengthen us, encourage us, comfort us, embolden us, purify us as we wait for your return. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing a hymn together calling us to follow Christ in these days. O church, arise and put your armor on.
bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Let's close it by the sea of crystal.